Thank you everybody for coming today for our SACPA talk, um, especially considering the conditions of the road. It's great to see such a big, uh, filled crowd. Um, my name is Cameron Howie and I will be your moderator today. And today our talk is coming from Dr. Kevin Taft on oil sands deep. Does the petroleum industry undermine democracy? Um, I would like to remind everybody to please turn off your cell phones before we uh, get started here. And please remember to pay for lunch afterwards. There is the uh, donation bin on each table and to have that counted before a SACPA member comes and collects. And I would like to also remind everybody that there will be a Q&A session afterwards, the presentation following the uh, lunch. And so this session will be recorded uh, through SHOT TV. And I think we're ready to go if you guys are. So please, would you join me in welcoming Dr. Kevin Taft? Thanks very much, Cam. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to be back here uh, in Lethbridge and to be back here at SACPA. There are many uh, familiar faces here and very friendly faces, which is, of course, what I always uh, love about Lethbridge. I should point out, in particular, among them, Bridget Pasteur. Bridget and I spent eight years together in the legislature. Four of those, she was on my side of the legislature. <laughs> Four of those, she was on the other side. But Bridget always, uh, Bridget and I always had a good connection. And uh, I have to say, she handled herself with more class in that legislature than, than the many, many people. So it's great to see Bridget among others. Lethbridge is, uh, Lethbridge is special for many reasons, in addition to the wonderful people who live here. It's one of the few corners of Alberta that isn't dominated by the oil industry. And so that means there's a different political culture here, different kind of social arrangement here. And I came to learn when I was uh, in politics and I'd come down here to visit that the sophistication of Lethbridge's economy and society, the, the manufacturing, the high tech, the huge agricultural processing industry, uh, the medical and, and uh, post-secondary sectors of the economy. It's a very diverse economy. I also was told repeatedly uh, with a lot of pride that people, people told me that there are more PhDs per capita in Lethbridge than in any other city in Canada. I don't know if that's still true, but uh, all of you look terribly intelligent to me, so it must be the case. Um, I, I first spoke to SACPA in 1997. Last night I was doing a little research about SACPA. And I realized it's, it was started 50 or 51 years ago, 1967. I imagine maybe it was a centennial project in 1967. And I tell you, and I, this is very genuine, I love this, this statement here. SACPA is an important organization for the health of democracy in southern Alberta. And I hope it's going... Uh, going for another 50 years. If you can't read what it says here, this is an absolute truth in my opinion. Well-informed citizens are the lifeblood of a free and democratic society, and that is absolutely the case. When I first spoke here, and I've spoken here I think three times in the past, I was, uh, 
much greener than I am now or much more of a rookie at public speaking than I am now. It's 20 years ago. I was speaking about a book I had written at the time, the first book I wrote, which was called Shredding the Public Interest, which became a little bit of a publishing phenomena uh, in Alberta. It sold out of print runs a number of times in, in very quick succession. And it led to some changes in my life. I had no idea when I was furiously writing this book where what it held for me. One is that it encouraged me to write more books, for better or for worse, so I, I, uh, I've written a number of other books on Alberta politics, and it also led me directly into partisan politics. Until then, I'd never been involved in, uh, in an election campaign or involved actively with a political party. And then in 2001, I ended up running an election. Lo and behold, I got elected as a liberal in Alberta a um, couple of years after that, I followed Ken Nickel from Lethbridge as leader of the official opposition, led the Alberta opposition through one general, general election when we went up, uh, which is when Bridget was elected, and then uh, another general election when we went down, which is how politics goes. Bridget survived that election, as did I, uh, but I stepped down as leader of the opposition at that time, and I swore at that point uh, two things. One is that I would never get back into politics. My wife always called me the accidental politician. And by the end of 12 years in the legislature, the accident was over. I was uh, ready to be done when I left that building. The other thing I swore is that I would never write another book on Alberta politics. At that point, I had written four. Well, two years after I didn't run in 2012, I got contacted by a university in Sydney, Australia. And at that point, Australia was going through a great boom in uh, coal exports and in liquid natural gas exports. So the coal, Australia is the largest coal exporter in the world, and they have a massive liquid natural gas industry, the likes of which British Columbia kind of dreams of once in a while when, when they get their, themselves focused. And the people in Australia were starting to notice that this tremendous rise of the fossil fuel industry was beginning to change politics and democracy in Australia. And they wanted somebody who had some experience with that to come down and talk to them and think about it and write about it. And they contacted me, of all people, invited me to Australia. So, of course, I said yes. And I went down there. And that's the beginning of, of the thoughts that I'm going to share with you today. I began thinking harder and deeper about how democracy ought to work. I did a lot of reading on the history of democracy. I read all kinds of examples of the power of the oil industry over political parties and over governments and regulators and, and frankly, even over medical doctors in some cases. And I became more and more aware that the power of the oil industry in Alberta was not normal and it was not healthy. One day I was reading in the newspapers, this is about three years ago, about a court case in Ontario involving a uh, close advisor to then Prime Minister Stephen Harper who was being put on trial for illegal lobbying for the oil industry. And I thought, wow, you know, there's going to be some evidence in there that would be really of interest to me as I, as I consider the power of the oil industry. So I called up a friend of mine in Edmonton who's a lawyer and I met with him. And I asked him, well, will this evidence presented in court be public? And he said, oh, yeah, that's a long tradition in Canadian courts. All the evidence is public. 
And I said, oh, great. Well, is there a website or something I can go to to get it? And he said, no, 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 no. He said, it's not, e it may be public, but it's not easily public. He said, you're going to have to go to Ottawa, go down to the courthouse and talk to the clerk of the court and, you know, convince them to make it public and go back and forth. It could take you days and days to get it. And I said, well, I can't just fly to Ottawa on a hunch. And he said, well, do you know a lawyer in Ottawa who might do this for you? No, I didn't know any lawyers in Ottawa. I still don't. He said, well, it'd be a great project for a student at the Carleton University Journalism School. Do you know any students at the Carleton University Journalism School? I said, no, I don't know any of those. He said, well, then you're stuck. So this was early in a December. And there's times in your life when you think the stars just line up somehow. Just a few days later, I'd come out of a shop on White Avenue in Edmonton. I'd done a little Christmas shopping for my wife. And this young couple was walking towards me on the sidewalk. They were all bundled up. I had no idea who they were. And the young woman looks at me and she says, Mr. Taft. I don't often have young women say that to me on the sidewalks. And I, I said, yes, yeah. Um, you know, can you help me with your name? I learned that line when I was in politics because I'm always forgetting people's names. Help me with your name. And she said, well, I'm Catherine. And when I was in grade seven and you were first elected as an MLA, I was given an assignment to write an article for the school newspaper and you let me interview you for that assignment. I've always appreciated it. And I said, well, Catherine, I'm really happy. What are you doing now? And she said, well, that led to my interest in writing. And you know what? I'm a student at the journalism school at Carleton University in Ottawa. <laughs> so I literally ran into the street in this answer to my problem. So I said, Catherine, have I got a deal for you? And um, you know, a few weeks later, when she went back to Ottawa and got settled, she did actually have to spend many hours and many days over the course of weeks of her, of her time pressing the court of the clerk to get these documents. But eventually I got this huge uh, digital file of all this material seized by the police, emails and bank statements and letters and contracts and arrangements which made public through open the door to the back rooms of the power of the oil industry and how it was working so hard to shape the energy policy of Alberta and of Canada. And that led to, to uh, me writing this book, uh, Oil's Deep State, which conveniently is for sale out uh, on your way out, and I would happily sign a copy for you. And in this book, I make the case that in many ways, government in Alberta has been taken out of the hands of the citizens and put in the hands of the oil industry. I argue that in effect, Democracy in Alberta has been captured by the oil industry. Now, I want to give you some examples um, of what I mean by that. I won't, there's a little bit of theory in here, but there's all kinds, there are no car chases, but there's scandal and there's fascinating characters and there's one tiny, tiny episode of sex. So you'll all want to get in, you know, buy your, get your hands on the book and read it. I'm going to give you a couple of examples, first of all, from Peter Lougheed's time as, as Premier of Alberta. Peter Lougheed was elected in 1971. I don't know if anybody here would know, but this would be a huge honour for me. I wonder if he ever spoke to SACPA. Uh, 
I bet he did at some point when he was in opposition or as premier. It's exactly the kind of thing he would do. There are two chapters in this book on the Peter Lougheed and the Lougheed family. Some of you will know Lougheed Historic House in what's now downtown Calgary. It was built by Peter Lougheed's grandparents. And Peter Lougheed's grandfather, James Lougheed, was a very powerful businessman and senator in Calgary. Uh, Peter Lougheed's grandmother, Belle, Belle Hardesty, which happens to be the same Hardesty named for the town of Hardesty, which is the one end of various pipelines. Belle Hardesty was Peter Lougheed's uh, grandmother. And what is not at all obvious on the public record until you dig into it is that Belle Hardesty's family, her aunts and uncles and mother and father, were not only one of the wealthiest families and most powerful families in Canada, they were actually uh, one of the most powerful families in the British Empire. And uh, there's tied into the CPR, the Bank of Montreal, the railway industry, and on and on. Now, the Lougheed stream of the fortune largely collapsed with the Great Depression in, in the 1930s, and that mansion in Calgary was repossessed. But when Peter Lougheed became premier, he brought with him this tremendous personal legacy, this personal understanding of the power both of politics and of business. And he was determined that the resources owned by the people of Alberta, because they under the Constitution of Canada, we own these resources, should be put in the service of the people of Alberta. And so he took on, in really dramatic fashion, the oil industry in his first term. Some of you might remember this. Just to give you a handful of examples. Um, and it's important to note, his first cabinet had only one person from the oil industry. Everybody else, they were farmers, they were drugstore owners or businessmen or teachers or university professor, only one person from the oil industry in that first Lougheed cabinet. One of the things they did was they commissioned a study to look at the natural gas prices being earned by the people of Alberta when natural gas was shipped out of the province mostly to Ontario. And they realized that Alberta's natural gas was being sold far below fair value. <coughs> And so they just suspended the export permits. They took the bold and dramatic stand of saying, we're stopping natural gas exports from Alberta until the people of Alberta get a fair price. The industry was outraged. The consumers in Ontario were outraged. But eventually they came back to the table. The people of Alberta began getting a fair price for the natural gas. He did much the same thing with royalty rates. Royalty rates had been set by the social credit government at 16%. Uh, Peter Lougheed thought this is much too low. Royalties are what we get as the people of Alberta for selling something we own. We own the oil and gas in the ground. We are paid for that through royalties. Well, Peter Lougheed and his team said, let's think like owners. And they dramatically raised oil royalty rates. They infuriated the industry because that money was coming off the bottom line of the industry. To the point where Peter Lougheed's membership and the Petroleum Club in Calgary was revoked. <laughs> but he took a stand, and his government took a stand. And just a third example, in very tough negotiations about the, um, the construction of the Syncrude mega project, 
It was being backed by a number of big oil companies, but the negotiations with the Alberta government were very tough. And the, uh, the Lougheed government put together uh, a brilliant team of specialists uh, and a whole strategy of negotiation. And, and in the book, I actually quote at length a first-hand account of one of these meetings between the Lougheed government and the industry on Syncrude. You imagine this big table, and along one side, high-priced, high-powered oil executives who are used to getting their way. And on the other side, a series of, of cabinet ministers from the Lougheed government. And the negotiations went offside. The oil industry would not budge. So you know what the cabinet ministers did? They walked out. They walked out of the meeting. They closed their binders. It's a wonderful scene in here, quite dramatic politics. They walked out and said, until you are ready to talk to us, these negotiations are off. And they took a stand. Do you know what? The oil executives were slack-jawed. They were at that table, not knowing what had happened to them. Within a couple of days, a new deal was struck, and the royalty rates from Syncrude were set at 50% of the first barrel of production, 50% of the net revenues from that coming to the people of Alberta who own it. So that's how a government can operate when it has the public interest and the courage and the integrity to take a stand. Lougheed's mantra to the day of his death, think like an owner. Well, once Lougheed was gone, the industry began pushing back hard with a very sophisticated campaign to get control of Alberta's resources. In the two decades after the 1989 election, at least seven people, and their names are in the book, and sometimes their uh, incomes and so on, at least seven people who served either as energy ministers or finance ministers came from the oil industry into cabinet, into either Minister of Energy or Minister of Finance. And in a number of cases, they not only came into cabinet from the oil industry, they made changes that they liked, and they went back to the industry. It was this kind of revolving door. One of them in particular was uh, Patricia Black, turned uh, Peter Lougheed's uh, system inside out. And I'm going to read briefly a uh, brief passage here just to make sure I'm fair to everybody involved. This, you know, this, uh, this copy of my book's getting a little bit dog-eared. When the book first came out in the fall, it's always kind of exciting for an author when you, I'm gonna, it's lunchtime, I'm gonna wander a little bit here. It's exciting to get, see your book in print. And I had the book launch event in Edmonton that evening, I still hadn't seen the book. It'd been a little delay on the printing press. And the, the publisher had rushed a shipment to Audrey's bookstore in Edmonton. And I thought, well, I better see this book. I'm launching it tonight. So I went down, and, and they were just unpacking it from the box, the clerk was. And so I said, oh, I'd like to, can I get a copy of that? And I went up, they gave me a copy, and I went up to, uh, to the counter to pay. And I said, you know, I, I must have been beaming like a thousand watt light bulb or something. And I said, you know, I wrote this book. And the clerk says, oh, well, good for you. He said, we'll give you 15% off. <laughs> so I got my 15% off. But it was the first ever, it was kind of special, it was the first ever purchased copy of the book. So I thought, well, this is really great. And that night, I went, I did the book launch, and then there were people buying the book and this young woman comes up and she bought a copy of the book and puts it in front of me and I, who would you like it addressed to? And she said, Chelsea. So I start writing out to Chelsea 
And I get C-H-E-L-S-E-A, and she said, oh, no, it's S-E-Y. And I thought, oh, now I've misspelled her name on the book she's bought. What am I going to do? I ended up giving her the copy, the first ever copy I bought, and I spelled it out correctly, which means I'm still using a book that's addressed to Chelsea. <laughs> and I used to offer it to anybody in the audience named Chelsea. I would give it to you. There were not, nobody in the audience, and now it's kind of dog-eared. Anyways, back to uh, Patricia Black and how she turned upside down uh, the, the Lougheed legacy. This was in uh, the mid-1990s. The key government minister as Minister of Energy was, was Pat Black. And she'd gone through a process that led to the generic oil sands royalty regime, which was enacted in 1997. In 2011, Black, who's now known as Patricia Nelson, she remarried, spoke at length to the Glenbow Museum, which recorded this interview along with many others and has put them online. She spoke at length about her approach to developing this regime. So I'm going to just read you from this interview, the interviewer. What would you consider to be some of the main achievements or highlights of your involvement with the oil sands, particularly during your time in government? Black. The number one thing was the generic royalty scheme, the structure to attract investment. That brought people into Alberta. That was the number one thing. Interviewer. And this was all about making Alberta more industry friendly. Black, well, you needed somebody to do the work and it had to be the industry. There's no point in making an enemy out of the people you're depending upon to do the work. So to me, bring them to the table right away. And they were very good, the industry. I took the view that no one could expect me to know everything about the industry. So I created a kitchen cabinet that I relied on heavily. I had people from pipelines, I had people who were contract drillers, I had people that were water haulers, I had people in conventional play, every aspect of the industry. I had land people I would bring in and they would be part of this kitchen cabinet and we would meet every Saturday morning. And they would sometimes just beat me up fiercely. And at other times I could go to them and say, what do you think of this? And they'd either say, perfect, or oh my word, you better have a look at this, this, and this. I was very lucky to have key people. All of these people were fundamentally key to helping with the change that we went through. And I've always been eternally grateful to them, to be honest with you, because I couldn't have done it on my own. Now what a contrast that is to the strategy of the Lougheed cabinet. Black didn't see this merging of government and the oil industry as a problem, to her, it was a good thing. After all, she had come from the industry and would return to it. To it. Her priorities and the industries converged. The industry was thrilled with this new approach to oil sands development. And why not? From then on, oil sands projects would have fewer standards of accountability to democratic institutions, more accountability to investors. The system of governing and managing the publicly, oil publicly owned oil sands had been captured by private interests. That's just a little excerpt there. But that gives you a sense of how the government uh, had become an instrument or became an instrument of the oil sands industry. Control of the oil sands was effectively 
captured by the industry from the government. Now, I'll go just briefly through a couple of different examples. Keep an eye on the time here. The Alberta Energy Regulator, it's not an organization you talk about very often, you may never even think about it. It's, a, it's an extremely important organization in our lives. It's the arm's length agency set up under legislation to manage Alberta's energy resources, which are, remember, the third largest oil reserves on the planet. This, is, this regulator is a big, powerful organization. It approves permits for new plants, it enforces environmental standards, standards, it administers key aspects of the Public Lands Act, the Water Act, and the Environmental Protection Act. Now, the Alberta Energy Regulator ought to be arm's length from the industry it regulates. That is, after all, basic practice in a democracy. Arm's length regulators. Well, not so for the Alberta Energy Regulator. It is 100% funded by the industry. And if you believe that he who pays the piper calls the tune, then you can see who calls the tune at the regulator. It is chaired by a prominent oil industry executive. And several years ago, the government itself captured by the oil industry changed the legislation of the regulator so that its mandate no longer includes protection of the public interest. The Alberta Energy Regulator is, in my view, a servant of the oil industry. Now, there are many other examples of democratic institutions being captured by the oil industry. Governing parties and opposition parties, universities, parts of the civil servant service, and so on. Ultimately, I argue that the oil industry has captured so many of Alberta's democratic institutions that the industry has become a state within a state, a deep state. In important ways, the oil industry runs Alberta for its own interests. My book shows how this has happened. So why does this matter, just as we get towards the conclusion here? Well, it means, among other things, that Alberta's oil wealth is not going to the people of Alberta who own the resource. It is going to the investors. And although these big companies are mostly headquartered in Calgary, they are majority owned, the big ones, by foreign investors, primarily Americans and now Chinese. Royalty rates are set so low that in recent years, get this, in recent years, the government has earned more from gambling and alcohol sales than from the sale of bitumen. The Alberta government sells about three million barrels of bitumen a day to big oil companies and actually earns more in the last uh, three years from casinos and liquor stores. The capture of democracy also means oil sands companies have been allowed to set aside less than 10% of environmental cleanup costs of oil sands mines, you know, the ones you see in those big pictures, which means there is a $20 billion unfunded liability for oil sands cleanup that is clearly at risk of falling on the taxpayer. This is larger than the entire value of the Heritage Fund. This capture also means that greenhouse gas emissions from the oil sands, which contribute to global warming, are being allowed to soar to levels that make it almost impossible for Canada to meet its international targets 
for greenhouse gas emissions. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think democracy in Alberta is dead. How can I possibly think that when an organization like SACPA is still thriving? Change will come to Alberta, but I'm afraid it's going to be pushed in from the outside, and I think the pipeline debate is part of that process. This is a conflict, the outside world beginning to push back on the oil sands industry, and it's only the beginning of what's going to be a very long process. There are all kinds of indications that the world is beginning to lose its appetite for oil sands production. I believe Alberta is in for a rough period as the world moves away from oil. But I also believe democracy will eventually be restored to health in Alberta and in Canada. This, uh, this means, just in, in concluding, this means that Lethbridge as one of the few areas in Alberta not dominated by the oil industry has much to teach the rest of us. Thank you very much. Thank you.